The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference, presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. The following is the Quality Assurance Guidebook Care Competency Training, Breakout Session QA3, titled Continuing Care, Continuum of Care, Discharge Planning, and Atypical Discharges. The panel includes Janet Blackburn, Maureen Boyle, Ph.D., Tom Kimball, Ph.D., Sherry Layton, and Michelle Sweet. Okay, well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to our first breakout session for the conference. Uh, I'm Sherry Layton. I'm with La Hacienda Treatment Center. I'm the outpatient services administrator there. And um, we are here to talk about the um, out of the Quality Assurance Guidebook, QA3, which is Continuum of Care, Discharge Planning, and Atypical Discharges. And so, um, you know, they're talking about billing in another room. I really expected to see a lot less of y'all here because I assumed a lot more of you would be there talking about how do we get paid quicker, more, faster, all of those kinds of things. We're delighted to have you uh, with us, and I think we have a great panel um, that has a lot of good things to share. So I'd like to introduce our panel to you. And um, here first to my left is Tom Kimball, and Tom is the clinical director with MAP Health Management, and he's also the executive director of the Texas Tech College for uh, the collegiate recovery community there. And then to Tom's left is uh, Dr. Maureen Boyle. She's the Chief Quality and Science Officer with uh, ASAM, American Society of Addiction Medicine. And then uh, Janet Blackburn is, uh, she and I work together at La Hacienda. Janet is the Clinical Services Administrator at La Hacienda. And then Michelle Sweet is our Senior Utilization Review Specialist, also uh, works with us at La Hacienda. And so we were very glad um, to be here to have this opportunity to share with you some things that, that we believe are um, very important about, um, you know, the, the ongoing process of treating the individuals who come to us. So Maureen is going to start us off, and I will turn things over to her. And I will say, you know, we're going to try to be somewhat conversational in our presentation today. And we and your questions are welcome. We will have a Q&A session at the end. But if you have something, you know, along the way that you feel like that you would like to, you know, throw into the discussion, please feel free to do that. Thank you, Sherry. And good afternoon, everyone. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the continuum of care within the ASAM criteria. Um, so ASAM, um, so that obviously there's been a lot of efforts across the country to implement a set of national standards, am I too close to this? Uh, a set of national standards around addiction treatment. Um, and ASAM, uh, with the help of uh, an a uh, uh, NATAP, <laughs> um, developed the ASAM criteria in the 1980s and has been updating those criteria um, through the um, consortium for the ASAM criteria, which, which NATAP continues to participate in um, across um, this whole time. Um, and all of the efforts around the uh, reforming the addiction treatment system uh, in the wake of the opioid crisis. Closer or further away? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
I'm sorry. I just was hearing the feedback there. Um, so, um, so the ASM criteria has been a foundation for efforts to reform the, uh, the addiction treatment system, and especially in the sense of the continuum of care. So the, the ASAM criteria articulate um, a continuum from early intervention to medically managed uh, inpatient treatment um, and everything in between, and articulate a set of standards around how do you determine which patients um, belong in which levels of care and, um, and, um, and, and what the standards are within those levels of care. Um, so ASAM has been um, you know, working on these for decades, but really in the last couple of years, the focus has really shifted towards how do we help the field and how do we help healthcare systems across the country to more comprehensively and more effectively implement a continuum of care. Um, so, you know, we, we think it's important to think about the ASM criteria as a, as a system. You know, so it's not just one thing. It's not just being an ASAM level 3.5. It's all of the pieces of the, of the criteria standards coming together um, from when the patient enters treatment um, in terms of using the, the, a, a comprehensive multidimensional assessment that covers all of the six dimensions that are articulated in the criteria to, um, you know, to determine what level of care a patient should be placed in. But then, you know, the, the patient being reassessed over time to determine what level of care they should move to as they progress through treatment, um, whether that means they're, they're not progressing well through treatment and need to move up to an, a, a higher level of care or whether they're progressing um, uh, well and can move down. Um, and so... ASAM has been working on developing tools to help healthcare systems put this into place. And one of the things that we think is important is that this, is, this really is a systems-wide initiative. This is not something that, that one healthcare institution can do on their own, right? If a, you know, an individual um, IOP or a residential treatment program you know, won't um, necessarily offer every um, level of care within the continuum. Um, and so it's about not just what the individual treatment programs and individual treatment providers uh, can and should be doing. It's also about what systems should be doing. So how does the state make sure that all of the levels of care are represented um, geographically and that patients actually have access to the, those levels of care? How do payers um, you know, make sure that their networks include these levels of care and, you know, and, and make sure that we're actually using the, um, the multidimensional assessment effectively and following the decision rules to make the determination of where a patient should be placed and where a patient should be moved to as they progress. So ASAM has been um, working on um, building tools to help support this type of systems-wide implementation. Um, and you know, one of the things that we say at ASAM right now is, this is really a decades-long project, right? This is not something that we're going to be able to snap our fingers and have all the pieces in place. This is a really big challenge. It's changing the way that the system works. I mean, a, a full biopsychosocial model is, is, is kind of revolutionary <laughs> within the field and fully implementing that in a way that's really responsive to what the patient needs and not to you know, an, an arbitrary limit um, in terms of how much treatment is going to be provided to a patient. Um, and so we recognize that, one, it's a very big lift, 
and that you know, a lot of pieces need to be put in place to effectively support a full implementation. And so some of the things that we've been working on for this are one, um, an ASAM level of care certification program. Um, so we've been working with CARF International to develop the certification program, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail in just a second. Um, we've also been working on developing um, ASAM criteria, a, a suite of courses around the ASAM criteria. Um, so uh, we actually first, we delivered our first one just last month um, in Indiana, and, um, and by the end of the summer we'll have, um, um, and that was kind of the, the, the test to make sure that we uh, you know, had, a, had the curriculum fully down. And so we'll be working um, on developing electronic courses that are available through ASAM's eLearning Center, as well as, um, you know, courses not just for, you know, for counselors and clinicians and providers, but also for utilization review managers and other, you know, administrators, others within the system that need to understand the components of the ASAM criteria to more effectively implement them in a, in a holistic way. And then we're, we also have the ASAM Continuum and Co-Triage software suite. Um, so the ASAM Continuum is basically um, a software tool that provides a comprehensive multidimensional assessment that um, has a, a, a decision support algorithm that um, uses the multidimensional assessment to make a recommendation for the appropriate level of care for that patient. Um, and co-triage is, is basically a, a preliminary assessment tool, so for use in the emergency departments or primary care, um, where you're not going to do the full intake interview, but you're going to get a preliminary recommendation for, you know, is it IOP, is it residential? Um, and so the, the thought behind this is that, you know, by standardizing how the assessments are conducted and the decision rules, you know, having a um, uh, kind of a... Uh, a, a robust set of decision rules that are implemented in a standardized system that we can um, have, have more um, uh, inter-rater reliability um, and, uh, and slowly improve that assessment over time to better match patients to the right level of care. Okay. Um, and so also to go into a little bit more detail in the level of care certification program. Um, so this is a partnership with, with CARF International. Um, we're starting with levels 3.1, 3.5, and 3.7. And that's, you know, we do intend to cover the whole uh, continuum of care over time. Um, it's just a very um, uh, high resource, high time uh, initiative. And so we had to bite off what we could chew initially. Um, and we just completed the, the first pilot of this. Um, so we're, we're getting ready to, um, you know, uh, set the standards for our, our second pilot and then um, ultimately uh, launch later this summer. Um, but the certification standards were developed by um, the, a, the, a set of ASAM criteria experts uh, that are ASAM members, um, and CARF is basically working on the, um, the delivery of that program. So, you know, we felt it was important to have a firewall between ASAM and CARF because many of ASAM's members are clinicians and will be seeking out certification. And so ASAM will define the standards for how programs are, are rated, and then CARF will actually deliver that program. And ASAM will have, have um, no say in, um, in who gets certified, um, and nor will we receive any, any money from the implementation of that, um, those uh, certifications. 
Um, and a lot of people ask about the difference between certification, licensing, and accreditation. Um, so licensing is, is you know, obviously it's, it's state-based, um, mostly focused on the safety of individuals within a program. Of course, that varies by state. Um, accreditation looks more holistically at an individual program. So um, whereas ACM is going to look at does your program have the capacity to deliver services according to the standards in the ACM criteria for a level 3.5? It would, you know, within a program that may offer a 3.1, 3.5, and a 3.7 all-in-one, the accreditation is going to look at that whole program of what's offered to the patient, the, 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 the policies and procedures, the staffing, all of that. ASAM is really narrowly focused on, are you prepared to, to deliver care in accordance with 3.5? Uh, another thing to mention is that, you know, I think a lot of people have been concerned about because CARF is the one delivering this program, what does that mean for programs that are, are, are JCO accredited? Um, you, accreditation is completely separate, so you can be accredited by any agency and then come and get certification through CARF. Um, and the certification program is, is really going um, to follow the standards that are articulated in the ASAM criteria, um, which cover these um, six dimensions from, well, I shouldn't say dimensions because <laughs> that means something else in the ASAM criteria, but this serv service characteristic categories. So from this, uh, the, the therapeutic services that are offered, staff, documentation, um, treatment planning, um, the support systems, and the, and the actual setting for the delivery of care will be covered. Um, and, uh, and as I mentioned, we, we just completed the first pilot, and uh, we're about to enter the, the second phase of the pilot. Um, we actually haven't chosen all of the sites for that yet, so we are, um, we're, we'll be um, choosing about 30 sites. So if anyone is interested, you can um, uh, you know, search on, on ASAM's site for the certification, and you can um, um, apply to be considered as a, uh, as a pilot site if you're interested. Um, and, and we intend to launch the program nationally um, by the end of the summer. And now I'm going to turn it over to our lovely colleagues from La Hacienda. If anybody's just a little sleepy at this point, I have found the key to staying awake after lunch presentation is to sign up to be on the panel because you will stay awake <laughs> if, you're, if you're thinking about what you need to be saying. Um, did you want to start or do you want me to go ahead? Okay. So Sherry had asked, basically asked me to speak about from the clinical perspective, um, you know, we have all these sets of criteria and how do we decide what patient fits in which level of care and what happens when this, it's, it's like making this real life. So when the patient actually admits, we have a bit of information coming in and they may look like this particular level of care and then they show up and they actually look like a complete opposite level of care. Um, and then they are shifting throughout treatment because one of the things we were talking about at the beginning is when somebody gets on board with, I'm ready, I'm broken, I'm ready to get the treatment, the growth can be pretty exponential, right? They can grow pretty fast and they can look a lot better than they actually are. They can sound a lot better than they are. They certainly believe they're feeling better than they were. And on paper, they can look a lot better than they are. So therefore, we're getting um, pressure sometimes to discharge people or to drop a level of care when they're really actually not quite ready. Do you guys feel that in your, yes, no? Okay. Um, so 
taking the real patient and putting them in the right level of care really requires a team approach. And so we use utilization review where Michelle works. She's also a clinician, but she works very closely over there. Um, I'm in charge of the clinical program. We have the doctors and the nurses and everybody together looks at the patient and from that point decides what level of care they need to be in. And then that's reviewed. They, they look at it at admission, then they look at it throughout the course of treatment. Now we also have insurance companies who um, like to have their own interpretation of what ASAM criteria means and sometimes they say that's very nice but we're going to use our own to determine how long a person is in each level of care which is what you get to deal with on a regular basis. I mean in that case then it's still, you know, what we're talking about is doing the right thing by the patient all the time. And so that means sometimes we have to get together as a staff and say, yeah, insurance company says this, ASAM says this, and this is, you know, we are going to follow what we think the patient needs and deliver the services that this patient needs. So, yeah, so to piggyback off of that, how many of you guys utilize insurance? Almost everyone. So, I think uh, the biggest struggle that I see in utilization review is that, um, again, what piggyback off of her, ASAM has certain levels of care that they theoretically would like us to follow, but insurance companies want to save money. And so, the patients don't always get to move through the continuum at the rate that they should in order to have long-term sobriety. And so people like me in utilization review are trying to mitigate through all of that, utilizing clinical services, building partnerships and relationships with these insurance companies to make sure that the patient ultimately gets the length of stay that they need to maintain sobriety. And so I was asked to talk about some of the ways that I do that. And um, I think the biggest piece is relationships. Um, and not only knowing criteria, obviously you need to come in competent to a utilization review and, and know criteria, but also building relationships with these insurance companies um, and partnering with them and helping them understand, look, we're both at a common goal to get this patient sober. We both need to follow ASAM criteria, um, but there's more to it than just the piece of paper. So let's pull in all this clinical piece, all of your clinical notes. Um, maybe they are struggling biomedically, but they're also struggling clinically, and I want you guys to have a holistic picture from the insurance side. So um, I think the key to everything is relationships, and um, that's really how I think La Hacienda has been successful in utilization review and working with the continuum of care with a bunch of different providers. So. Any suggestions on getting the clinicians on, you know, connected in with that process? Okay, so yes, so La Hacienda has a lot of clinicians. Do you know exactly how many? <laughs> it's a lot, and a like lot of different team case managers yes. plus all the other instructors. So it's a lot of personality types, and and again goes back to relationships with them. But being, um, I guess, putting the patient first and looking at this utilization review is about to come up and, and working with the treatment team and staffings and in, through email of, hey, what does Johnny need? I see the clinical information here. I'm missing some of this of what this insurance company is going to ask for. Um, can you provide me more information or can you make sure that that is provided in the chart so that we can get what we need for this patient? And again, it goes back to building relationships and, and communicating. The insurance company is looking at this on this end and we need to be able to provide that to the patient, um, not only from the insurance company, but also um, so the patient gets what they need as far as coverage goes. 
that what you were hoping for? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just, I think that's the key piece too. Uh, just the communication on both and on the clinical side, but also to the insurance company while following ASAM criteria all at the same time. So it's sometimes a fun balance. Do you want to start you want to say something? No. Do you want to start into this section? Okay. Okay. So um, the next part is covering discharge planning. And um, we feel real fortunate where we are because we have a separate department that can help us with that. So there's case managers manage each, every patient has a case manager. We have a department utilization review that handles all of the calls and deals with the insurance companies. And we have a continuing care department that assists from the beginning that assists the case managers with placement. So from the first time that we're doing the initial screening, our folks are thinking about long-term. And when I'm looking at a screening to determine if we're the right place for a person, I'm looking at where they're gonna go when they leave us because they're not gonna be with us forever. And um, I think that that's part of the whole ethics of care is to look at this person had a life prior to coming to us and most of the time had some sort of services delivered to them prior to coming to us. And they will have a life when they leave us. So what's that gonna look like and what kind of things do we have moving forward when we're planning for discharge? Um, and that takes into account utilizing the resources that the person actually has. You know, we can all come up with the beautiful picture and paint a beautiful portrait of how this person's gonna go to this treatment center and have these services, and that. but if they don't have the resources and motivation of patient and family are included in some of those resources, you can have the perfect plan and somebody is not on board, it doesn't work. Um, is part of that whole is part of that whole planning, and it's also. I mean, I think ideally, like if somebody enters a particular level of care, what we're wanting to see is for them to decrease their need for services. Correct? We want them to get better, and as they get better, the amount of services that they need is supposed to decrease. That's the formula, as I understand it. But that's not always the way that it works in real life, and so. Um, we want to be on top of the discharge planning from the beginning and make sure that it's, it's responsible and ethical and within the reach of all of the, all of the players. Um, so that requires a lot of extra work. Part of the reason why we have another department is so that they can know, you know, we can't be all things to all people. And so when this person needs to go back to Arkansas, we need to know where to send them in Arkansas for continuing care for intensive outpatient that's going to do quality care. So it, may, it means that we all have to communicate with each other. We have to know who's out there. If we get a patient who, for example, we are um, substance use, we, can, we, don't do, um, we don't have a psychiatric license. So if we get a patient in who looked like an addict, but after the detox, they're pretty sure that we have a primary psychiatric patient on hand, we need to know where to send those people. So it's not just... Um, it's about knowing the patient, it's about knowing what's out there in the world and knowing your resources so that you can get them from A to B to C. And on top of that, from an insurance standpoint, then you have to play the role of are you in network or are you out of network? Are you referring to facilities or in network to stay within your contract? And a lot of times in utilization review, we'll get a therapist that'll say, hey, I need an in-network IOP in Louisiana. And I'll go back to the insurance reviewer and say, I need an in-network IOP in Louisiana. And they're gonna spit out this really long list. And we have no idea if these are ethical and good standing facilities or not. So programs like continuing care and having that specialized department, they actually go out and see these facilities and 
make sure they're vetted and providing great services. And so we just took this list from Aetna Insurance, cut it in half, and then make sure that our patients are getting good quality care for aftercare. I think that's an important piece too. You have to work with the insurance company, but you also have to make sure that you're digging deeper than that. And I think, you know, one of the things that our industry has kind of come um, under scrutiny about is, you know, Dr. Kelly had that slide this morning where he showed the patient being shot out of the cannon, you know, out of, it's like you're through with treatment, boom, there you go, back into the world. And, you know, we have, we have treated uh, treatment as this um, one-time event versus, you know, the chronic nature of the disease and an ongoing treatment process. And I think we're all familiar with that conversation and the criticisms that, that we've come under. And so, you know, how can we really connect into that full idea of a continuum of care? Um, and, I, and even in the QA guidebook, and I think many of us use the term discharge planning because that's what we've always called it discharge planning, but it also gives that message that you're done now, mm -hmm. you know? And so what we've tried to do, and, and we've named our department con the continuing care department, and so we, we try to talk from about continuing care and that this truly is an ongoing process. And, um, you know, we start that very early in treatment. As Janet said, we have a dedicated department. We have two licensed counselors that that is their role, is to work with our case managers and the rest of the treatment team to, um, to, to get the patients where they need to be. Um, and so we very early, um, our continuing care coordinators, they, they split the caseloads of the case managers, so they each work with about seven case managers. And they go to that case manager's uh, group once a week. And for those patients who are brand new in that group and on that caseload, they're just introducing themselves and they're just in basically introducing the idea of there's going to be something after you leave here. We'll figure out what that's going to need to be, but there's going to be something that you're going to need to do after you leave here. And then as that uh, patient progresses through treatment, we begin to talk more and more specifically about what that continuing care uh, resource should look like for them. And that's based, you know, primarily we look to the case manager who's working in, in, in at La Hacienda. We use the term case manager very broadly. It's their primary counselor. It's their therapist. It's the person who does their group, their individuals. It's the person who's working with their family. So it's, you know, so, um, so they're really um, with input from the treatment team, really looking at what is the next level of care recommendation for this person. And that's a wide continuum for us. Um, at the very low end of that continuum, it would be individual therapy along with 12-step support and alumni services, peer recovery support services. On the very far end of that continuum, the other way, it would be true extended residential care for something like trauma or um, perhaps eating disorders or some kind of ongoing psychiatric care or, you know, to base, again, based on what that individual needs. And so all, you know, everything along that continuum is, is what we, you know, look for for these patients. Um, and... You know, we've, we've invested resources when you have two full-time staff members dedicated to that. But what we found was it freed up our, uh, our counselors to spend more time on that. And they, they weren't having, you know, for some patients, continuing care referral and planning is really, really simple. And, you know, they're, they're on board. 
They have the resources that they need. They're going to a well-populated area that has lots of options that are in network with their insurance, and you know those people, and you can just pick up the phone and make a, con a phone call and get that referral in place, and there you go. And then you have some patients who, you know, there was a, a patient a few weeks ago, I said I could have placed 10 people in extended care in the amount of time that it took me to work with this one patient because it was such a difficult situation that we were trying to navigate. And so, you know, when the, the primary counselor is responsible for doing that, it really, you know, it can just pull a lot of their time and energy from the rest of their caseload when they're having to focus on that. Mm -hmm. so, so it begins to pay off. Um, in, in giving some dedicated resources to that. Um, and, you know, we, as we have to look at geography, you know, where does this patient want to go? The, the points that Maureen made is, you know, that, that from a standpoint of every level of care being available throughout a state, you know, and in Texas, we have some incredibly rural areas, and you can't find anything in less than a 100-mile drive. You know, um, and so being able, you know, access to services has, it's not only about can you pay for services, but are the services even available, you know, where you are. It's one of the benefits of peer recovery support is peer recovery support has, um, can have a much broader reach sometimes than, than straight up clinical services have. Um, and then what types of financial resources are available to the patient. And, and sadly, what we oftentimes find is those who most need it and most want it can least afford it, you know. And, and those who can most afford it oftentimes have the least desire, you know, for, for ongoing services. And, um, but we look at, you know, what does the patient need in terms of a level of care recommendation? Uh, what financial resources are available for that? Where does this patient want to be in terms of geography? Um, and what is the patient's level of motivation? Um, and oftentimes that level of motivation will determine a level of care recommendation as well. And um, in the, um, you know, with, from the geography standpoint, we, we literally have patients who, because our, our patients we're located in central Texas, but our patients come from all across Texas and even all across the country. And we have patients who, they, they change from day to day as to what state they think they would like to go to after they leave treatment. <laughs> I'm sure y'all have some of those. So I think I'll go live with my uncle. He's in Florida. You know, I have this aunt. She's in Colorado. She's always been really nice to me. Or I have a great friend from college in Mississippi. Maybe I'll go to Mississippi. You know, I've got good support there. And you just feel like a pinball, you know, bouncing around trying to figure out where you're going to get this, you know, start needing to look for resources for this person. Um, so putting all the pieces of that, that puzzle together, um, we want, a, you know, it's referred to as a warm handoff. When our patients leave treatment, we want the next step in place. We don't want to say, here's three referrals, give them a call when you get out and set something up. Because you know and I know 90% of the time that doesn't happen. You know, So we want their insurance verified. We want them to know what their financial obligation is going to be for the next level of care. We want those appointments in place consent signed. We want records sent. We want the, the receiving provider to expect them and to know who they're getting. Um, and we work very hard to develop relationships uh, with other providers. Um, we, we do visit a lot of providers. Um, we don't, I wish that, that we, 
knew them all, but we don't, but we visit a lot of providers. Um, and uh, when and if it's some going someplace that we don't know anyone, we start a vetting process. It's one of the things our continuing care folks do. And we look at uh, we look at their websites, we call them, we ask them key questions that we believe are important. Um, we talk to them about what kinds of services that they provide. We, we want to do our very, very best that we're sending a patient to someone where we feel like there's going to be a good flow into the next level of care and consistency with the treatment that they receive from us. Um, and then, you know, we always ask patients to let us know, to let us hear back if there's... Uh, we do a one-week phone call after discharge, and we want to know, have they made their continuing care connection? Uh, it, how's it working out? Um, have they made their 12-step connections, those kinds of things? And if it has, uh, if there's any problems uh, with that continuing care connection, we want to know about it so we can help them connect uh, on to the next, the next place. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, and I think that uh, that pretty much just describes our system. It is... Um, we also do a presentation in our family program every week, trying to explain to our family members the importance of continuing care and, and that this ongoing uh, treatment experience for their patient, what that's going to look like and why that's important, um, and make recommendations for family members as well to get the care that they need and get the support that they need. Um, one important piece of what we've done is we have added peer recovery support specialist services post-discharge, and we connect, uh, we're utilizing uh, MAP care solutions, and so we are utilizing that as a resource for our patients. And Tom, uh, the clinical director for MAP, is going to discuss a little bit about the importance of peer recovery support and the benefits that that brings to um, folks in early recovery as well, as well as an ongoing resource throughout recovery. Oh, thank you so much. I'm just going to put my timer on so I don't take too much time. Um, first, let me say that before we started to present today, uh, we sat down together at lunch, and, and this was the first time I had met uh, several of uh, my co-presenters, and I was just struck by their, their passion and how much they cared about the work that they do. And as, this is the first time I've been at this conference. And uh, it's amazing uh, to be here and you know, as I look out across the audience, this is personal for most of us. Uh, this is personal. We, either we ourselves suffer from uh, the chronic brain disease of addiction or we love people who suffer or who may no longer be with us. And so the, the importance of our work is not lost. Uh, I also have four sisters, so I felt very comfortable being up here with these, <laughs> with these great ladies. And uh, they're going to keep me in line if I get out of line. I know that. Um, I want to I talk about extending the continuum of care through two very creative, what I think are very creative means. Um, and the first one, um, you know, has to do with, you know, what we've been talking about, the first point about acute versus chronic. I think that we can all agree that addiction is a chronic, uh, chronic condition, a chronic disease, uh, severe substance use disorder, and those who suffer uh, need chronic care. Um, and that's been well articulated here in these set of meetings. And uh, it's particularly interesting to note that people are at most risk in that first year uh, post a treatment episode. Uh, there seems to be some significant vulnerabilities during that time, upwards to four to five years. 
uh, as they pursue uh, their recovery. And I think that uh, as we think about these two kind of creative solutions, we need to remember about the vulnerability during that time. And uh, again, that's not lost on this audience. Uh, one of the things I do is I'm the director of the Center for Collegiate Recovery Communities at Texas Tech. I'm a professor there. And uh, Texas Tech uh, provides recovery support to students in recovery. Um, and people ask me, well, what does that mean? Well, what that means is we provide uh, support services much like athletes and veterans receive on college campuses. So why do students in recovery need specialized kind of support? Anybody have any ideas? <laughs> I hate to be the one to break it to you, but college campuses are laced with alcohol and drugs. And uh, it's an... Yes, abstinence hostile environment. <laughs> the amazing thing is, is that uh, uh, when you provide specialized services to students in recovery, and specialized services are academic support, financial support, but the magic of collegiate recovery programs are a community of peers. It's what peers do for one another that help uh, them navigate a very abstinent hostile environment. And so my 125 students at uh, our collegiate recovery program uh, help each other. I provide a scaffolding of support, and then they uh, assist each other uh, from being a freshman to graduation. And many of my students now are going on to uh, graduate work. So it's an interesting thing to think about when you get somebody with nine months to 12 months of recovery, and then you are able to provide support to them through their most vulnerable times over the four and five year mark and, and uh, watch and see what happens. I wish I could transport you to our uh, graduation dinner in December where we, you'll be able to hear from our graduating seniors and uh, to see the difference, right? I get to see the fruits of your labors long ago as they become amazing men and women, professionals, college graduates, moving on to be engineers, lawyers, doctors, uh, and many embracing wanting to be in the field uh, to help others. It's an amazing kind of thing. Back in 1986, when we started, there were three other collegiate recovery communities. There was one at Rutgers, and there was also one at Brown. Um, over the course of uh, the next 33 years, uh, we've gone from just a handful. Now, um, I'm the president of the Association of Recovery and Higher Education. Yes, that's our he. Think of pirates. You'll never forget. We represent now about 120 uh, college campuses, universities that have collegiate recovery programs on them. Uh, we often ask, why doesn't everybody have a collegiate recovery program? Um, our students, collectively, nationally, there's a series of studies that I was involved in. Uh, the lead author was Alexandra Laude that looked at a cross-sectional examination of collegiate recovery programs. And what we found in that cross-sectional examination is that collegiate recovery students do better than their counterparts at the universities. Why, you may ask? Because they're not using alcohol and drugs, <laughs> right? They, they have higher GPAs, higher retention rates, higher graduation rates than their peers, all because of a unique and creative solution of extending the continuum of care through commu a community of peers offering support. It's brilliant, and guess what? It doesn't cost anything. If you go to the university, well, it costs university tuition, but my students are not charged anything for their services, neither are any other services that, are, that cost across the nation for these collegiate recovery programs. In fact, we, we, are, uh, we actually give scholarships to students in recovery um, and have brought many students in without an, any kind of academic record, 
because when we give a scholarship to a student, they're automatically accepted into Texas Tech. So students with a GED come in, and guess what they do? They do amazing. They do wonderfully. Uh, they kick butt, basically. So that's, a, that's one thing. So there, there is a movement now of collegiate recovery programs across the nation. If you want to know where one is of the 120, just search uh, collegiate recovery or the Association of Recovery in Higher Education, and you can go to the website and find that out. Um, one of the, uh, back in 2012, I had a conversation with a gentleman named Jacob Levinson, who uh, was from Lubbock, and we sat down and we talked about this very idea about extending the continuum of care and how we might, uh, and Jacob is a brilliant person, and he had amazing ideas of not only extending this continuum of care, but filling the gap of gathering outcomes and longitudinal outcomes data. Uh, I was fascinated with Jacob, who he was, his motivations, uh, the goodness of him, and so I became involved with MAP Health Management, and now I'm the clinical director of MAP Health Management. We all wear a variety of hats, don't we? This is one of the hats I'm proud to wear. And um, MAP, what, they do, what MAP does is they provide extended recovery support for 12 to 18 months post-treatment. We get involved with the folks that we're going to be supporting, our persons in recovery, as we call them, before they exit treatment. And through telehealth and video conferencing, we connect uh, peer recovery support specialists who are trained both at the state and national level with the person of recovery that they're going to be following for the next 12 months, 12 to 18 months. And we begin to offer support to them as they exit treatment, uh, which is really important. Um, so long-term peer recovery support, uh, as the slide said, is a powerful solution, I believe. Uh, it's a proactive way to offer support to people in recovery. The primary goal at, at MAP, uh, through our peer recovery support specialist, is to detect early signs of uh, risk of relapse. So there are indicators where somebody is uh, becoming at a higher risk uh, to have a use event, and uh, we want to try to, to assess that risk and then intervene where appropriate. Uh, we also... Uh, want to guide them back in meaningful ways to wellness and recovery. And what we've learned is that peer recovery support specialists are very good at gathering data, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, important to note is that peer recovery support um, is best done, and I think we could talk about treatment as well, where family members are involved. Uh, my, my PhD is in marriage and family therapy, and I think it's uh, incredibly important that we all consider how the family is impacted by the disease of addiction and uh, also how they can be part of the powerful solutions that we're considering. We did a set of studies uh, over the course of the last few years, of, um, and these are brain studies, mostly looking at the prefrontal cortex uh, through FNIR, some of you who may be familiar with that. And what we did is we showed people who were in recovery at various points of time different kinds of pictures. We showed them neutral images, negative images, and positive images, and we uh, got a baseline, and then we showed them their drug of choice, uh, first-person drug of choice, and we saw how their brain lit up. Um, and again, it's cross-sectional. We may have somebody with three months of recovery and somebody with 15 years and everyone there in between. And what we found is that the part of the brain that uh, when you showed somebody a first person image of their drug of choice that says the world is coming to an end, right? It lights up on the side of the prefrontal cortex. That was more activated 
the earlier you are in your recovery. And the part of the brain right here that says everything's going to be okay was less activated early in recovery. But as people moved along in their recovery and their brains developed more powerful way of coping, uh, this part of the brain quieted. It's like the world is coming to an end. And this part of the brain uh, was much more activated. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right which is interesting to think about that maybe we might be able eventually to have almost like a biological marker of recovery where we could put somebody in an FNIR, which is a really kind of a cheap way to look at the prefrontal cortex and show them images and help them understand how their brain is healing, right? This is preliminary evidence to that effect. Well, uh, brilliant researchers, uh, Spencer Bradshaw, Sterling Shumway, my colleagues and I, uh, wanted to design the study with family members, so we did the same thing with family members. We got uh, their neutral, positive, negative images baseline, and then instead of them showing them a drug of choice, we actually showed them their family member who was struggling with addiction or had struggled with addiction. And guess what the findings were? Exactly the same, right? We know this anecdotal. So over time in recovery, family members... Um, have the same kind of responses. In the beginning, it's, oh my gosh, the world is coming to an end when they see their loved one. And over time, the part of the brain that says it's going to be okay in their recovery works very, very well, right? So families are impacted on a brain level. This is evidence of that. First, that I know of. Um, be, trying to love and manage because of the fear and terror of loving somebody that suffers from addiction. Um, and so family members have to be, in my opinion, be part of the equation. Peer recovery support specialists, um, highly trained peers, um, are, uh, have emerged as a very powerful and ethical lane to run, a professional lane to run in. Peer recovery support specialists uh, who are trained and supervised can do amazing things. They can't do things, I'm a, I'm a clinician, a therapist by training and by practice, they can't do the things that that clinicians can do, right? And they certainly uh, can't take the place of a fellowship or if somebody's walking a 12-step pathway, a sponsor. We're not talking about that. We're talking about someone ahead in the process running a very specialized and specific lane of support uh, for someone and geographically can reach them anywhere in the world through tele and video conference means. It's quite a powerful thing to think about. Um, they can effectively be trained and provide support from a strength-based approach. Um, and I've, I've seen that over uh, the last seven years, how uh, highly trained and supervised peer peers can do amazing work with persons in recovery. They also at, are very good at um, evalu evaluating risk. Um, they, they have a sixth sense of being able to evaluate risk when somebody is moving towards uh, some kind of use event or some kind of decompensation in their, in their ability to pursue wellness and be in recovery. Here's what I didn't know. Peer recovery support specialists are not only powerful engaging persons in recovery, but they are amazing at engaging family members. When I first started with MAP, I, I thought that uh, family members would want to talk to other family members in recovery. I was way wrong about that. People, family members want to talk to somebody else who's in recovery who is ahead in the process, ahead of their loved one. They want to talk to somebody that has been there and done that. And our peer recovery support specialists are remarkable 
at engaging family members and continuing to engage them through the 12 months uh, that we're talking about. Here's the other thing. Peer recovery support specialists are amazing in gathering data. Um, I think they are the best data gatherers that we have. And the reason that I believe that is because of the relationship that peer recovery support specialists build with persons in recovery. It's quite remarkable. When you have an established trust relationship, the kinds of information that a peer recovery support specialist can give. Of course, the peer, the person in recovery is consented and knows there's going to be data gathered. But in the conversation with a peer recovery support specialist, just in the conversation, a, a, just a plethora of meaningful data is gathered. And that doesn't even account for the standardized questions that a uh, peer recovery support specialist can then ask and record uh, to a person in recovery uh, through those uh, most vulnerable months following uh, treatment. Let me just give you some numbers. This is based on about 8,500 people. That's right, Jared, 8,500 people. So you can see that there is attrition um, over time in that 12 months. But those numbers historically, y'all, are amazing. The engagement rates of people post-treatment, that, those numbers are miraculous in my, in my opinion, in what I've seen in the research. And you can see that even at 12 months, which is when um, uh, people are completers of the MAP program, that with, with uh, persons in recovery, we're at about 40%, and then with family members, we're at 52%. These are remarkable numbers. Um, engagement is the key uh, to success. Engaging people in meaningful ways over time and then being able to gather data um, and show outcomes is a really powerful, creative way um, uh, to be able to do this through peers. Now, what types of data can you gather? Here's just a list. Um, you were, if you were in John Kelly's presentation, he had uh, kind of that slide where he showed all of the factors and indicators. So what we're talking about is we're trying to think about this, this thing called recovery, right? And in our minds, I could sit with you and say, what does recovery mean? How do you experience recovery? You know, and you could tell me all these things about what recovery means. So when we gather data, we're looking at these different factors that, that pull out or try to measure what recovery is. And so you have the traditional piece where we're talking about using or having a use event or a relapse. That's traditionally been the, the marker of success when we think about recovery studies. Um, but there are a whole host of other things that uh, can be measured and MAP has measured, things like risk levels, the quality of life, or things like uh, quality of life would be things like the development of recovery capital. You all have heard that. Or social determinants of health. Uh, a host of demographics um, and other core indicators, such as medication compliance, um, and two that I think are um, maybe the most important, which are a return to work or a return to school, right? Those two are quite amazing. Now, I'll give you an example. Sometimes it's not just the data that, they, that we gather, but the insights that's gleaned. We have a question about integrity in our data set. And uh, it asks, you know, uh, about uh, their folks' level of honesty or integrity over the course of the time since we last spoke to them. 
And it's interesting because um, you would think, uh, you know, you might get this very interesting answer. So you think, okay, a person says, I have, man, I'm the, the most, uh, I have the highest integrity out of anybody, right? And then, or no, I'm, I'm terrible, Tom, I have the worst integrity. Or uh, I'm, you know, sometimes I'm doing okay and sometimes I'm not doing okay. It's interesting to note that the people that are the highest risk uh, for some kind of use event are people that answer on the extremes of the continuum. So if you say, I have, I'm doing great, I'm a person of amazing integrity, or if they say, I'm terrible, I'm the worst person out there, they're more at risk than the person that says, hey, I'm working on it. I'm, uh, sometimes I'm struggling, but I'm, I'm keeping moving forward. Right? That kind of information is powerful. That kind of information of how somebody navigates their recovery over time is exceptionally important. I don't, and I don't think it's lost, uh, lost on this group to say, if we could bring that data back to bear on treatment. Like, for example, most people coming out of treatment have huge uh, legal and financial issues. How much do we prepare people for a recovery journey if we don't talk to them about their legal and financial issues, if we don't give them some kind of mechanism of support longitudinally to deal with that significant stress? Stress is the enemy for people in recovery. And if they're dealing with a whole host of financial issues and legal issues, and we don't give them an extended way, a pathway to get out of those issues or to work through those issues or to make meaning of those issues, then, we, then we're going to continue to struggle. Again, speaking to the, the extension of that continuum of care. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, again, let me just say how great it is to, to be here and to speak with all of you and to present with these amazing people. And uh, we'll move forward with the panel. Thanks, Tom. You know, I think that, that we all know the research says the longer that you can keep an individual engaged in treatment, the better success, the better chance they have at, at maintaining long-term recovery. And, you know, what we tell our patients all the time, you know, we tell them that, but then we also tell them that doesn't mean you have to stay here for, you know, ever, for six months or for a year or whatever, but for them to be engaged uh, with some types of recovery support, with some types of clinical support, is going to be a key focus on you know their their maintaining of long term recovery. And so, it's it's that idea of how someone can move through a continuum of care uh, and get to a place where they have the ex, the uh, types of support that they need, and and those are going to look different for based on the needs of the individual, um, and. So starting, you know, in, in our facility, we start with detox, and we have, um, from an ASAM standpoint, 3.7 as a level of care, 2.5 as a level of care. Um, and so how we engage with those other folks. Some providers provide the full continuum within, their, within the context of what they do. For those of us that don't, we, we need to be um, creative and resourceful in how we connect patients otherwise. I think we also all know that some patients discharge rather abruptly, what in the QA handbook is called atypical discharges. Uh, sometimes folks have to leave treatment, you know, not there's a family emergency, there's a medical issue with a child, there's something that's really, um, you know, outside of their control that's probably more therapeutic that they 
go home and be a part of and how can we build support around them during that period. There's also folks who, out of their own, um, the, the nature of their own disease, the, the impulsivity, the impaired thinking, uh, they, they make the decision to leave treatment rather abruptly. And so, you know, and, and I know it's easy to say, well, they left AMA or, you know, they just, you know, in an outpatient setting, they just quit coming back. Um, and so it's, um, and to feel somewhat of a, you know, like a lessened responsibility for, for helping them to transition to, to get that support that they need. Um, but we still feel like from an ethical standpoint, we have the responsibility to do as good a job as we possibly can to help folks to connect. And so um, even when someone is, is leaving AMA, we, at La Hacienda, we, we try uh, to put some resources together for them to, to give them. It may not be a fully fleshed out continuing care plan as they're, you know, storming out the door. Um, and, but to give them something that when the time comes that they start to rethink things, they may be able to say, okay, you know, let me, if they didn't wind the piece of paper up and throw it at us on their way outside the door, some, a place that they can, can go and look at some resources. We also try, you know, there's also folks who, you know, um, doing the very best job that we can, they have refused all of our recommendations. We still try to give them that information, so should they change their mind, they, they have that information with them. And so, you know, we want to spend a few minutes just talking about those atypical discharges. Um, what does it look like when someone leaves AMA uh, or in some of the cases where um, we're looking at folks who have perhaps uh, shown some suicidal ideation while they've been in treatment or prior to coming into treatment or someone with an opioid use disorder where we have the, the concern about them using again and overdosing. So we want to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the things that, that we do with that. And I'll let Janet start with that. Okay. Um, yeah. I think the most important thing is to treat the patient with dignity throughout the process, even when they're not acting very dignified. And sometimes that happens towards the end when they're mad and they need to leave for whatever reason. Um, one of the tools we use is, you know, the, the clinical staff will try to intervene if somebody's leaving against medical advice because sometimes the patient really feels like they're better than they really are, like I talked about sooner. Um, one, one tool I use is to, to go to them as an administrator and say, hey, what, where did we mess up? What did we do? You came here ready to do the whole thing. We've obviously disappointed you somehow. What did we do wrong? And usually they will say, oh, you did nothing wrong. Um, you know, it's just time for me to go. But And then the other part of it is who can we call? Because a lot of times prior to that AMA departure comes that I'm rescinding all my consent so you can't talk to anybody outside. So that's, that's the biggest nightmare, you know. They're new, they're not well, they've rescinded all their consents and they're going out into the wilderness without, you know, they're walking down the street. And so that's when we all have to communicate again and really do what's right by the patient. Sometimes it'll just be please let me call someone on the outside just so that they know you're leaving, so that they know you're coming home, so that they know you're coming to them. And sometimes those kind of things work, sometimes they don't. Um, the other part of it is like, you know, like Sherry said, preparing them with, here are some people you can call if you get in trouble. Um, here is a, uh, we give them Narcan if they're an opiate addict and they, you know, I mean, we love the idea of recovery with purpose, fully recovered, living an abstinent life, um, 
going off into the sunset, embracing sobriety forever. But we will settle for harm reduction at that point if that's all we've got. You know, if somebody is, do you know, guys know what I'm saying? I mean, we want to, we want to keep the person alive so that they have a chance. So um, we try to engage whatever we can in terms of support. We take that extra time. Another difficult situation is an administrative discharge. So you have patients who got in a, um, a fight or somebody who brought drugs onto the campus or something like that. They need to get out of there for the protection of the other people. Even that patient, as undignified as they are, um, we try to treat with the dignity of transferring responsibly that patient. Now, it may have to be the sheriff at times, but usually um, we can hold off. The, the moment diffuses, we have time to get the family in, to get the patient to another facility. And people make mistakes. We're dealing with people who are you know, new to recovery, very impulsive, very sick a lot of times, and so they're going to make mistakes. It doesn't mean that they're, that they're going to do that at the next facility. It's just that they blew their opportunity at this facility. Um, we've all had those patients who set themselves up as scapegoats and everybody else around them doesn't really want them there. That you, the, you get those people in your office where you say, they go or I go, you know, those kind of patients, um, and, and doing what's right by them as well. So it, it doesn't, our responsibility as treatment providers doesn't stop based on, on their particular um, behavior. So it's trying to get them the best services they can under those circumstances. And it, if at all possible, engaging people on the outside, engaging maybe the referral source, somebody on the outside that can help us get them to the next place that they need to go. Do you want to chime in? Sure. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say, um, and then from an insurance standpoint, I think some atypical discharges that happen are they'll abruptly say patient no longer meets ASAM criteria 3.7 and or, or let's use an example at La Hacienda 2.5 and um, patient, we, we, patient now is, has no coverage as far as insurance goes, no means of how to pay for treatment. And we have to look at, um, is this patient willing to self-pay? How are, how are we going to mitigate and make sure that this patient is taken care of? And if they're not going to be staying with us, how are we going to ensure a very speedy um, discharge plan to get them to the next um, level of care that's going to be able to appropriately treat them and insurance is going to be able to cover um, appropriately. So that's another piece to look at. And then I think also, uh, from an insurance standpoint, if we really feel that that patient meets that level of care and this is not ethical or there's a parity violation, whatever that may be, I think it's important to advocate for our patients and be willing to do doc-to-docs. I think a lot of times people are like, oh, we're not going to do a doc-to-doc or our doctors aren't available. I know at La Hacienda, if there is a doctor doc, our doctors are going to do it, and they're going to advocate for that patient if we feel they meet criteria for that level of care. And I think pushing back at the insurance companies um, to keep them in the level of care as we feel are appropriate has been very beneficial as well. So helping to avoid those atypical discharges too. We also um, joint commission and their pay implementation of uh, or probably the greater focus on patient safety standards that they put into place a couple of years ago, put an emphasis on patients who would demonstrate any kind of uh, suicidal thoughts, uh, either prior to coming, perhaps having a, a history of suicidal uh, suicide attempts, expressing suicidal ideation while they were in treatment, and making sure um, that those patients are safe when they leave. And so, you know, we've implemented a, a process for um, assessment of that, um, you know, to, to do a suicide assessment, make a determination if that needs to be something that we do ongoing or if we feel like that that 
has um, really been resolved. And then, but um, Joint Commission did say, you know, if if that has been a part of this person's process, that you have to then provide them with resources. So. Um, so I was going to say suicide resources. What I should say is suicide prevention resources, um, you know, post-discharge. And But we just learned uh, last week they've changed that standard, um, and that's no longer a requirement. So, But, of course, we now have it implemented into all of our processes and all of our paperwork. Um, so it's something I think that we'll, we will keep because it's a, it's a good practice anyway. But, um, you know, so making sure that patients have information about suicide prevention hotlines, making sure that they have information about, um, you know, solid continuing care resources. Ideally, if a patient is transitioned well to their next level of care, they're going to have the clinical support they need that if any of those issues arise again, that they will, the, the next clinician will be able to address that. Um, but all of these atypical issues really point to the need for continuing care planning starting very early in treatment because we don't know when something will happen in the patient's life and their family outside of treatment, will happen with their insurance coverage, will happen with just their own decision about what they believe is right for them. And so if we're not starting from scratch right then at that moment, we're in a much better position to try to do well with them uh, to put some resources in place for them. And we have been successful with some folks, you know, just to occasionally to say, hey, you know, will you, will you give us until tomorrow and we can set up continuing care for you? Or we'll give us till Monday and we can get some, you know, get continuing care resources in place for you. And, and sometimes they'll, they'll agree to that. Sometimes they'll allow us to do that before they quickly depart. Um, but if we have been working towards that already and we have some idea of, of where the patient might be looking to go, where home is for them, um, you know, that, that is helpful. Um, and so, again, we're documenting all along the way the conversations that we're having with patients about continuing care, and so trying to record what their intentions are, what their ideas are, so we can follow up with those things more quickly in a, in a kind of a, a quicker-than-expected situation. Okay. Um, we, we would be glad to uh, answer your questions or hear your comments. Um, things that are working for you, things that uh, you're struggling with. Um. Sure. So, like, the process, for example, you're doing a utilization review, you're fighting for, I call it fighting because a lot of times with the insurance companies you have to fight with them. <laughs> um, and uh, so the reviewer on the other end doesn't feel that um, this patient is meeting criteria, ACM criteria, for this level of care. And um, so they're clinicians <laughs> on their end. You have to be a clinician on both sides. And... They also don't have the right to deny, only a doctor can. So a true denial of that level of care has to come from a doctor. So when I say advocating for the patient, I mean going through the appeal process of them saying that that uh, patient doesn't meet that level of care. So when they say that, they want you to step down to a lower level of care. And advocating for the patient, if you feel they meet that level of care per criteria, would be sending it doctor to the doctor, meaning our doctor is going to speak to 
Aetna Insurance or whatever insurance company stating that they don't meet that criteria anymore. And then having a doctor-to-doctor -doctor conversation about our doctor thinking probably that they do meet that level of care, providing their rationale to their doctor. Sometimes we win, sometimes we don't, but I'm just saying the importance of going through that process of appeal for the patient, I, I think is good ethical care. So does that make sense or? Um, so we, we have some interactions with the insurance companies, but not really on that level at this point. Um, you know, and I think there's a difference between the, um, you know, we're using the ACM criteria book and the standards in the book where you basically have to defend how you're applying those standards versus, you know, we have the continuum software and we have been talking to some insurance companies about um, using that for automated utilization review decisions, right? Like if you go through the, 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 the full interview and the algorithm basically says the patient needs a 3.1, that that, you know, would get automatically approved. I don't know whether that's ever going to happen. <laughs> um, but, you know, we do think, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how many people are aware of a recent court decision um, for United Behavioral Health, um, you know, that basically said, you know, they were claiming to implement the ACM criteria, but they weren't effectively following the standards. And so they're liable for the, you know, the lack of coverage that, um, or the, the coverage denials that they were, that they were giving to patients. Um, and so, you know, I, I think this, I would hope that this is, is basically making a lot of payers take a step back and say, um, you know, how do we objectively implement the ASM criteria because we're clearly going to be held to that standard in court. Um, and so, you know, we are hoping that, you know, I think I mentioned the, the ASM criteria course, right? So things that payers could do. They can, um, they can have their utilization review managers take the ASM criteria course and really have a depth of understanding with it. Um, you know, they can use the, you know, once it's launched, um, the ASM uh, level of care certification program could help them say, you know, this program truly can deliver a 3.5. Um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, making sure, like I said, that their network has, has a sufficient capacity of all of the different levels of care. Um, and continuum could potentially be used to automate those, those utilization review decisions. Um, so that's part of how we see, um, you know, the tools that we're de developing being used by payers, but, you know, ultimately it comes down to them to implement. Uh, one second. Great race for Victory Bay. Just on that, at ASAM, uh, what's, the, what's the plan for the lower levels of care certification? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's one of these things where you wish you could just snap your fingers and have it all done, um, because even now, the, the program that we're about to launch, as I said, it's 3.1, 3.5, 3.7, it's only adults. Um, it doesn't get into co-occurring. It doesn't get into withdrawal management. And so we're, we're in the process right now of basically developing our strategic plan for, you know, what do we do first? Um, you know, do we, do we go wide within, the, uh, within level three and make sure we cover all of the permutations of the criteria within there? Um, or do we, you know, um, you know go out, um, you know, to, to level four, to level two? Um, and uh, we're still, still figuring that out, but we're 
we're really looking at how can we move forward in all of these ways as quickly as we can, and it's, you know, it's the balancing of resources. But it, like, we do intend to, as quickly as we can. We, we do find that conti process, the continuing care process and the planning for that uh, can be very beneficial in the UR uh, conversation. If we are actively working on continuing care planning and, and we're making sure that we're documenting those conversations with the patients, because the utiliz utilization reviewers on the insurance side are, are asking, what are you doing about continuing care planning? What's the plan for this person? What are they... And, um, you know, to, to give our UR folks that ammunition to be able to have that, that information. And then also, you know, when the patient is indecisive or we put a nice plan together and then the rug gets pulled out from under them and they, you know, it, it can't happen in the way that we expected it would, that, you know, the utilization review has some things that they can work with there to get authorization from some additional days for us to put the pieces of that puzzle back together. Absolutely. And then you had your hand up too, did you? Yes, a little on topic. You talking to me? Yes. Yeah. First off, thanks for returning to me. And this is for Tom. It has to do with your brain study that you had between uh -huh. the uh, client and the family. Were there other variables put in there for the client? Like uh, age, gender, drug of choice? Yeah, these were all people that uh, claimed alcohol as their drug of choice. Right. And again, brain studies are very small, so we're talking about 10 to 15 people on a brain study. So those things, again, these are preliminary kinds of pieces, and so there's not a lot of variability uh, with, within that, except for the, the biggest one being time and recovery. Right. Yeah. If, you're inter if anyone's interesting, then just email me, and I can send you the references to those two studies. Okay. Probably share on Aetna. So Aetna was the. Yeah. Um, so MAP has been in conversation with a number of different uh, payers, and so uh, kind of the first one that that came on board with us was Aetna, and so really, really, there's a couple of pieces. They're they're very interested in, um, it, you know, the the data that we're gathering. Um, also, they're very interested, of course, in uh, the provision of care and avoiding. Uh, what, what peers can do is avoid, uh, help people avoid acute care moments that are really, really expensive and to steer people back to care quickly, um, e even back to treatment quickly. Um, and of course, payers would like that to be in network. Um, and so they're very interested in those kind of pieces. Um, it's rare, uh, and I don't know if this answers your question, but I feel compelled to say it. It's rare that maybe the most cost-effective thing to do, which would be extended peer recovery support, may be the most effective thing to do as well. We also provide um, uh, data back to the treatment facilities, um, and that can be very, very important as well. So people, we track people that have had a use event. Uh, we track uh, some things that we know are important to people who are walking a 12-step pathway, like a number of meetings a week they're attending. 
Um, also a variety of different other social ind indicators that we provide. So the hope is, again, there's so much to do in the field, but the hope is is that you could use longitudinal data to inform treatment now, right? You could fold that back. Um, and it's been done in many different arenas. The, the personal one for me, I have five children. Um, I know that's shocking that, first of all, a woman would marry me and have five children with me. I know you're all shocked with that. My middle child, Nathaniel, is a cancer survivor, just diagnosed just shy of his fourth birthday with leukemia. He's 21 now. He's about to get married. He's doing great. So don't worry about Nathaniel. But 30 years ago plus, kids with leukemia, nine out of 10 of them died from their disease. And then a whole group of providers got together, and they made a standardized treatment and two experimental designs. And kids were randomly assigned to those. And we were part of a study a long time ago. And we were, we were randomly inside the standardized treatment. And as soon as they found out longitudinally that one of the uh, treatments was better than the standard, they made that the standard. So over the last 30, 40 years, now 9 out of 10 kids with leukemia live. Why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we, and maybe this is the great organization to do it, why couldn't we figure out... Uh, how to standardize best practices, standardize care, adherence to that care, um, help people understand uh, level of disease. We, there's, there's a lot more variables, I understand, uh, when we're talking about treatment. But why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we get together, figure out what we need to do in treatment, how we need to follow people post-treatment, and the right outcomes to measure and fold that back into treatment. And why couldn't we flip this on its head as well? I think we could. I think we could. There's, but we have to overcome some pretty significant barriers to actually do that. I think we can, again, because it's personal. I mean, people are dying. And people that we love are dying. We, we, we owe it to them and the field that we love to, to figure this out. And I think, I think there's momentum behind it now. What Tom didn't say specifically, but Aetna now sees peer recovery support as a covered benefit. And so um, they provide that benefit through MAP services. Um, and, but the other, the so once, once Aetna, what, Aetna started to do that, and we began to get calls from a lot of different third-party payers. Like, you know, so we're, we're in contract, and in, that takes time, though, as well, right? To get to have that happen. But that is, that's an important step that peer recovery support specialists are seen as a legitimate professional lane that's reimbursable. In Texas, our, in our last legislative session, we passed legislation that allowed um, the, the peer, peer recovery support became a covered benefit with Medicaid. You know, so it, more of that is, is happening. Um, and the, you know, peer recovery support isn't going to replace treatment but it sure does benefit what we do in treatment on the longer term. And I think the reality is insurance companies know, you know, they, they've insured this person. They've seen all, you know, this person has cost them money either through medical services or ongoing treatment service. They know when this person gets better, you know, based on what their claims begin to look like. And so insurance companies know where they, they know which treatment programs are, are providing a better product, I think, you know. So they, 
They don't share that information with us, but they, I really truly believe they know that information, you know. Does that answer your question? I think that's a big piece of the outcomes uh, project that, that NAATP sponsored. Um, and I think they're talking about that tomorrow. I think there's a session on that tomorrow. Um, and, and I think the goal is to be able to have some of that aggregated data. I know that MAP is working with a variety of different treatment providers, so it's not just one treatment provider saying these are our outcomes. It begins to look being more of an industry-wide. And unfortunately, I, I don't know that we as an industry have created that kind of collaborative you know, pool of information, which is very much needed to do the kind of work that, that you want. And I think that's one of the goals of the NAATP outcomes project is to, to create that kind of aggregate data across the, uh, you know, the industry to say treatment works. We know treatment works. We just don't have the, the numbers to show that it does. I'll just quickly add to that. You know, I'm also excited about the, um, the new uh, NIH Healing Communities Initiative because um, I think that's a big piece of what they're going to be doing is looking at how you pull data from disparate data sources. You know, because within the, the treatment industry, you don't necessarily have all of the, the data to get at long-term outcomes. You don't, if you don't hear from a patient for, you know, if you can't get a hold of them, you know, um, are they dead? Are they um, in jail? Um, are they doing fabulously and moved to a different state? <laughs> and, you know, uh, so, you know, we just, we haven't had the, the, the data systems infrastructure to be able to, um, to, to have a data set like this. And part of this is, um, you know, they're, they're all using different data standards. So it's not even as simple as just saying, like, make this system talk to this system when you're, you're capturing data in ways that don't allow you to just merge them easily. Um, and so uh, NIDA is doing the, the, the Healing Communities Initiative, and I think this is a big part of that, is how do you pull, you know, data from criminal justice and social services and Medicaid and, um, you know, in, in addition to the, um, you know, to the treatment systems data um, to really be able to ask those hard questions that we haven't been able to, to answer. In, in Texas, through the, um, the electronic health record that the state-funded facilities utilize, they pull all that data and they they report what happened, but it's it's skewed completely towards publicly funded services. No, there are no private provider services included in that data, and so we have advocated this year that the state is required to collect the information from the private funded providers, so that the data is a broader picture of what. First of all, what does the problem look like in the state? And then what is happening as a result of, you know, treatment and recovery services that are being provided in the state? So I don't know if that's common in other states that you have your, the snapshot is only the publicly funded system and not doesn't include the privately funded system. But I believe that we don't have a real picture if that's all we're looking at. Education is a part of this. I love that idea. Are you 
collaborating? Or how does the community get collaboration in a local community college or a, a higher institution in that area? Is that something that your institution thought of and kept, or is it modified to go anywhere else? How does that work to be to have I think I understand the question. Back in 2004, we were given some money by the Department of Education and SAMHSA to do a, uh, what we called a replication curriculum that helped other universities to implement and plan a collegiate recovery program on their campus. And then the association uh, is an elected body, um, and there are regional reps all across the nation that will provide technical assistance or at least give information about how this is done, and you can you can talk to somebody that has done it in an environment that that is like uh, yours. So if you have a if you have a community college, we have community colleges that have started them there. If you have a private institution or a state funded, so there are a lot of people in the field that would generously give and talk to people about how to to do that. We host a number of people at Texas Tech who come seeking that answer, like how do we do this in our campus, and what are the challenges and the barriers and I'm happy to talk with you about that if, if you have an idea about that. About. So I have a question for Tom. If, <laughs> um, so you were, you were mentioning the uh, family is engaged with peer support. What exactly does that look like, and how do you kind of, kind of create separate. the world? Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. So we're talking about how if, you can, if you're providing support to one person, you know, how do you, su you provide support to another person? It's, it's a little, it's interesting, like those of us that have been trained as marriage and family therapists, it's kind of an act that we balance that on a regular basis. What we don't do is we do not talk to the family member about the person we're providing support to. So it's directly providing support to them in their walk to find wellness, uh, growth, recovery. And so it, it, we train our peer recovery support specialist intently to keep that line very clear. So if a, a, a mom says, well, how's, how's Johnny doing? Um, you know, ma'am, that's not something we're going to talk about. I'm here to be supportive of you and, and your walk in recovery, and uh, we'll go from there. So in my, in my work um, uh, clinically, and most of you will probably relate to this, um, working with family members, to me, is the, is the bigger challenge uh, than working with people in recovery. Um, family members are um, reluctant to get help and support and uh, are, can be uh, very reactive to fear. So it's, it's a delicate balance. And let me just say why I have the mic. If, if I had my wish in the world, it would be that we would throw away terms like enabler and codependent, and we would see families' reaction for what it is, which is uh, terrified and fear-based responses. I don't think it does any good to label somebody an enabler or codependent, but to offer them or try to coerce them in any way to shift and change. What we know is that providing support, education, helping them return to a place of love versus fear is way more effective. Uh, so. You didn't ask that question, but I answered it. That's a bonus. That's a bonus for today. A good bonus, too. And a great, if, no, if there's no other questions, that's a great note to end on. Thank you all. Thank you. Sorry about that. No, 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 that's good. good. It's a great question, though. Because Brian, uh, San Francisco. Oh, my friend Brian. I thought maybe I just I was in. Yeah.